0: ...people, whether they are fishermen, whatever their trade was, they spent hours upon hours studying about God, studying their Bibles, studying theology, listening to teachers like John the Baptist. Then Jesus takes them under his wings and trains them day and night for three and a half years. So it's shocking when the Jewish religious leaders in the book of Acts, how can they speak such a way? These are unlearned and uneducated men just because their degree wasn't fully accredited through either the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai, the two leading rabbinical schools during the time of Christ Jesus was not a recognized rabbi the fact of the matter is these guys had the apostles probably had more theological training three and a half years of it was from God himself the Lord Jesus Uh, but they probably had more theological training than any Christian on the planet today uh, the reason why God has complex things like this in His Word uh, that He expects even the Christian lay person to know is because we're, we, you know, supposing you were, supposing you're a lady and your husband's in war and combat and he writes letters to you. And somebody comes to your house and sees all these unopened letters just laying on the floor, a couple of them in a trash can, but none of them have been opened. And then this lady tries to say, well, I love my husband. I just don't feel like reading his love letters. Um, The Bible is God's love letter to us. And we claim, you know, we're real serious Christians and this and that, blah, blah, blah yet none of us want to get really grounded in his word in fact we've got a lot of a large segment of the church suffers from anti-intellectualism where if you study God's word too much as if there could be such a thing and if you're really trying to understand even the difficult passages they act like you're karma you just got to believe by blind mindless faith and not look into these things it's very carnal, very egotistical again it's no not God, you know, God did not give us a trap. He gave us a very big book. And some areas in this book, like Romans chapter 9 and uh, John chapter 10, some of the things in this book are very, very complex. And God does not expect only the preachers to thoroughly know His Word. He expects all Christians to thoroughly know His Word. That's why the preachers are supposed to thoroughly know it. So that they can go out and train others and there's no no such thing as a person who's totally mastered the Bible but the fact of the matter is uh, we should be able to explain even difficult passages like this and so uh, there's no justification for the idea uh, that men can become gods uh, someday Uh, by the way in that passage uh Even if you gave the Mormon the benefit of the doubt, it wouldn't prove what the Mormon is is trying to teach. Uh, The Mormon is trying to teach that Mormon males can become gods someday. Uh, God there calls these guys gods while they're still living. So it wouldn't teach that eternal progression if it was taken literally, it would teach that they were gods. Of course, all the evidence is against that—they're not gods, or even they're hell-bound sinners. Uh, but it doesn't—it doesn't justify the Mormon doctrine of eternal progression, one way or the other. Uh, Isaiah 14:12 to 14, God is slabbing the kingdom of, of uh, is it Tyre or Babylon there. You confused Ezekiel 28. Take it. Isaiah 14, 12-14 Ezekiel 28 uh, God slams both the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon and as he's slamming them he says things about them that would be impossible uh, if these guys were merely human and so what he's basically saying is the real king of Babylon is Lucifer the real king of Tyre is Lucifer um talks about Lucifer being in the garden. If I can get the word Lucifer from one of these two passages, the morning star, um, that Lucifer was in the garden of Eden and that his big sin was he wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit enthroned and receive worship and replace God, basically. Um, Genesis chapter 3, 1-6, to six, you find Lucifer... Taking this lie that he fell for and trying to cram it down the throats of Adam and Eve, saying if you disobey God and you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall be as gods. So the lie of the garden. Mormonism starts out with the Book of Mormon. It starts out looking so much like Christianity, but the longer you study it, the more you read up on it, the more and more it starts sounding like Satanism. Because in the end, it's the lie of Satan in the garden that you, you you shall be as gods um, Ezekiel 2 chapter 28 verse 1 talks about the king there that you uh, you, you call yourself God but you're just a man and it's it's just over and over again bringing that point home so this idea of eternal progression uh, is uh simply not scriptural Uh, and it's uh, it's heresy it's blasphemy to think that men can become uh, gods someday Okay, uh, the Mormon doctrine of Jesus Uh, remember I said there's some things that you can say that will uh, push Mormons away this is one of them Uh, Mormons do teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer but they don't like when people tell remind them the mind that. Okay, it really, really kicks them off. Yeah, you might just push them out of your house. But see, more, anybody has anybody here ever seen Ed Decker's uh, cartoon of what's the name of the God Makers? Uh, he's a former Mormon and. Uh, it showed Mormonism is kind of like a science fiction story. And you had God the Father with a body, and he was going to create the planet Earth, and he was going to be the God of this planet. And he wanted to, to come up with a way to, to, to save mankind, people on this planet. I wanted to just make up this big, arbitrary, you know, human history and salvation for mankind. And so Lucifer threw in his he had all these spirit sons and Lucifer was one and Jesus was another and Lucifer said you know I've got an idea why don't we save man this way and God the Father up from him and said no that's that stinks I don't like that idea uh, Jesus you got an idea and so Jesus the spirit brother Lucifer said yeah how about uh, man sins and falls and and then needs to be redeemed and I become a man and redeem him and so, you know, God the Father said, that, that sounds great. We'll go with that. So Lucifer got all upset and was jealous, and so he decided, I'm going to try to destroy my uh, uh, brother Jesus' plant. So now this is one of their spirit brothers. So then Jesus ends up at a point in time taking on a body. See, Jesus wasn't a god then. Only God the Father was a god. Then Jesus, uh, as a man on a planet, having a body, eventually attained to godhood and so now he's god but he's still getting better at being god and there's some gods who are greater gods than him and other gods who aren't as good as basically jesus had to lead the ball game, as far as the mormons are concerned he's still progressing in godhood he's a better god than we are but he's not as great of a god as god the father someday he will be that great but by then god the father will have progressed uh, beyond that uh, also the mormons very conveniently teach that jesus had several wives uh, mary Magdalene, martha and mary and uh, that at least uh, made it a little bit easier for joseph smith to justify his uh, polygamy um, but of course, John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Jesus is God. He did not cease to be God by becoming man. Jesus is getting better as God. Um, uh, Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He form. He is fully God. You can't get any more... Godly than being fully God. Uh, Hebrews 13:8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus of the Bible always was. Jesus is is the the greatest you could possibly be throughout all eternity. That's what being God means. You can't get any better than that. You can't improve upon that. Um, And then Coratians 1:15 to 17 tells us that. Not only did Jesus create the earth and the physical universe, but He created all things, both visible and invisible, and He created the angels. They're called the thrones, dominions, authorities, powers. Okay? Uh, Mormons teach that we pre existed as spirit beings, and some Mormons teach that. Spiritual aspect always existed. uh, We always existed as spirit beings, but it was a point in time that we became uh, humans. And some Mormons seem to disagree from others, and it's hard to say who's right on that. Uh, Though the answer might be right in one of those words. But even there, Mormon prophets, like Catholic popes, disagree at times. But whatever the case, Jesus is the creator of the entire universe everything else that exists okay both visible and invisible that is not the Mormon Jesus the Mormon Jesus is uh, just one of multitudes of men uh, who progress to Godhood and are getting better uh, at Godhood as time goes on okay um Let's let's stop there and take a ten-minute break, and then that'll give us. Uh, see a bit. Then that'll give us an hour and five minutes to finish up. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're on the uh, doctrine of the Bible. Uh, Uh, Doctrine of the Bible. According to Mormons, the Bible is, is not the final word of God, and so they had more sacred books. We talked about in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, uh, the Journal of Discourses. So, according to them, it's not the final word. They had more sacred books, or what they think, what they call sacred books. Um, and then, of course, if their books conflict, with the word of God, the Bible, they say, "Well, the Bible like, just wasn't translated correctly here. Okay, or it wasn't copied correctly here." Um, Ephesians 2:20 tells us that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, of the apostles and the prophets. So you, you had basically the early church, Jesus and the apostles they acknowledge the Old Testament as God's Word. And then you have the New Testament Apostles and Prophets and they were recognized as being Apostles sent out from Christ Himself. but when we read John 14, 15, 16 that deals with the Trinity, you also find that Jesus said the apostles would be his witnesses because they had been with him from the beginning. The beginning of his ministry, baptism of John the Baptist, till the end, till, the, till his death and resurrection and all. Uh, and also because he was promising that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all the truth, would... Uh, to the remembrance all that Jesus told us all in John 14, 15 And Jesus said it too in Mark thirteen thirty one. Jesus said heaven and earth would pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus promised to preserve his word for generations. Well, how do you think he would preserve his word? They didn't have videos back then. They didn't have tape recorders back then. Well, he's probably going to preserve it the same way they preserved his word in the Old Testament. And that was in written form. Then John 14, 15, and 16 it tells us that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit. He would guide the apostles into all the truth, bring to the remembrance all that Jesus taught them, uh, would teach them future things, things to come. Okay? And so basically, Jesus. Uh, would preserve his word through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the apostles, his authoritative witnesses to the world. Once the apostles are off the scene, you know, and it's like even when they talk in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. The early church was gathered around the apostles' teaching. Well, if you're a New Testament church today, you're still gathered around the apostles' teaching. Okay? Um once the apostles are off the scene the authority of witnesses are gone that's why Jude could say in Jude 3 uh, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints you know if, if the Mormons are right Jude should have said uh, contend earnestly for the faith that is now being delivered to the saints and will be delivered to the saints throughout all centuries okay okay but Jude seemed to think that his generation was going to close the canon. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. through Jesus. Up. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. We're told there that God spoke to us in the past in many different ways. Various times, in many different ways. Through angels. Many different ways. Through the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son who is the exact representation of his nature. See, what's the whole point? The whole point that he's saying is God's been revealing little bits and pieces of his truth to us. But the culmination of God's revelation to man is the person of Jesus Christ who fully reveals God to us because God has become a man. And so basically, God's revelation reaches fulfillment in Jesus well, that needed to, needs to be expounded, what that all means, what Jesus revealing God to man means, and that was done by who? God's authoritative witnesses, the apostles, those who are sent out with the authority of the one who sent them, okay? Um, so when Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 tells us that everywhere God is flawless, He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, do not add to his word lest you be proved a a liar. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 warns us don't add to this book of Revelation or take from the the book of Revelation. Um, We're warned over and over again to make sure that we don't add to or take from God's word. We know the Old Testament is God's word. Jesus basically taught that. He said that the prophets were from Abraham, I mean from uh, uh, Abel through Zechariah. That covers the whole Old Testament period. And it stopped right there at Zechariah before John the Baptist and Christ came on the scene, which means it leaves out the extra books that the Catholic. Oh, had. The books. Yeah, the apocryphal books, yep. Yeah. And, uh, but he accepted the Old Testament and he basically promised the New Testament and told us that through the Apostle of to come out. Everything else that we read needs to be tested by the authoritative Word of God, which is the Old and New Testament. So, so adding more sacred books is, is certainly not biblical. Uh, the Mormon view of salvation is that Jesus died so that all men could be resurrected, physically resurrected, and then judged by their works. So when they say Jesus is my savior, all they mean is that because Jesus died, all mankind will be physically raised from the dead, but then we have to be judged by our works. So it goes right back to work salvation, okay? Salvation by God's grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone was right out the window. so in their view of salvation salvation is by faith in the Mormon Christ not the true Jesus of the Bible faith in the Mormon Christ Mormon baptism good works and obedience to Mormon ordinances and when you look at the scriptures Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us for by grace that's God's charity God's unmerited favor for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast faith means to trust in to rely upon and so we're saved as a gift by God's grace through trusting in Jesus alone for salvation and that's the true Jesus of the Bible that's why Jesus could say in John 14, 6 I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me John 3.16-18 is very clear that God loved the world so much that He sent His Son to die for us so that everyone who believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Those who don't believe in Him remain condemned. Those who do believe with him, believe in Him are saved. But the purpose of God sending Jesus to earth was not to condemn the world were already condemned but to save the world. Jesus. Uh, Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous, no not one, so we're all sinners. And Romans 3.20-23 tells us that we're not saved by the law. No one can justify themselves in God's sight by obeying the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of sin and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that uh, the only way for us to be saved is by trusting in Jesus for salvation. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we earn eternal death by our sinfulness, um, but the free gift that God gives to us is eternal life through Jesus. Now, let me say this about God's law. Okay? God's law, it does not say, okay? Uh, just about every religion outside of Christianity teaches that you can save yourself by obeying God's laws. Most of them will say God's going to give you a little help. But God's law does not say, God's law instead reveals to us, it reveals. God's holy standards or God's holiness, okay? God's justice, okay? So then we try to obey God's holy standards and attain to total righteousness and justice on our own, and what happens is we fall short. So God's law not only reveals God's holiness, but it reveals my sinfulness. It reveals man's sinfulness. Therefore the law reveals the gap between man and God. gap that can only be bridged by God, therefore the law reveals man's need for God's salvation. Okay, so God's law does not save, but it reveals God's holiness, God's justice to us. Because we fall short when we try to obey God's laws in our own strength, it reveals man's sinfulness. So it reveals the huge gap between man and God, a gap that only God can bridge, so it reveals to man God's uh, man's need for God's salvation. That's why Paul in Galatians could call the law a, a tutor, a substitute teacher intended to lead us to Christ. Okay? Um, First Peter 2.24 and, and 3.18 it tells us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins he bore in his body our sins on the cross took our punishment for us uh, basically uh, Jesus died as our substitute sacrifice All the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament could not save, the book of Hebrews tells us. No one is saved by animal bloodshed. But they pointed forward that someday, see when a guy performed a sacrifice in the Old Testament, he's supposed to be doing it believing that this is an expression of my trust in God and my belief in his promises, that someday he will send the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice, who will die for my sins and uh, all sin is rebellion against God and God is the ultimately worthy being therefore even the smallest sin is deserving of the ultimate punishment and you can't get any worse than the eternal separation from God and eternal flames of hell so when everything is said and done the only worthy sacrifice for our sins Would have to be, that substitute sacrifice would have to be an ultimately worthy sacrifice. Hence, uh, God is the only candidate that could be our our substitute sacrifice. But there's a problem. God can't be sacrificed, God can't die, unless he becomes a man. And so that's what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, and Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 tell us. That in order to suffer and to die for us uh, God had to become a man, the second person of the Trinity had to become a man to be the substitute sacrifice for us. That's why John the Baptist could see Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Uh, You know, literally millions upon millions of lambs and animals have been sacrificed throughout the history of the Jewish nation and Jewish faith. And John the Baptist goes messianic. He, he was waiting for the Messiah. When he saw Jesus, God revealed to him that this is the ultimately worthy Lamb of God uh, who would take away the sins of the world, and be that substitute sacrifice that would die for our sins. Matthew 19, 25 and 26, everybody knows how Oh, yeah, it's so hard for a rich man to get to heaven. It's as hard as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And we like to talk about that because none of us are rich. But we forget, verses 25 and 26, the apostles thought, well, it's that hard for a rich man to get to heaven? How are we going to get to heaven? So they asked Jesus, well, how can man be saved? And Jesus responded in Matthew 19, verse 26, this is impossible for man but all things are possible with God. In other words, man can't save himself. If man is going to be saved, he's got to look to God to provide the salvation for him. Okay? Um by the way, as we get we've gotten pretty in-depth on salvation, on Christ's deity. When we get to the other cults, we're just going to refer you back to so that we don't want to go over the same ground over and over again. Although that would be a good thing to constantly go over the deed of Christ and, and salvation, but because of limited time, that would be something you could do in your own time and throughout your walk with the Lord and your ministry. Romans 11.6, Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So what Paul is saying is salvation is either a free gift or it's earned. It can't be both. And uh, the Bible teaches us by grace it's not something we can earn. Okay, the next doctrine of Mormonism that we need to refute is the idea that we existed as spirit beings before our conception. Uh, Zechariah 12.1 is a little bit tough a little vague. He says that God formed our spirits in us when uh, we were conceived, basically. But, um, but I think what's more clear is John 8, 23 and 24. Jesus said, I'm from above. You're from below. Now, if, if Mormonism is true, everybody's from above. Okay, you understand the point there? If, if Mormonism is true... We were all spirit beings. We're all from above, but Jesus said, "I'm from above. You're from below. And unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins." Basically, what he said. We break it down in plain English, but uh, but Jesus is saying we're from below. Our origin is not from heaven as spirit beings. Our origin can be traced to our conception in the wombs of our mother Colossians 1.15-17 not only did Jesus create the physical universe but he created created all the invisible things that exist as well the only uncreated things that always existed the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the the three person God and so Jesus created the invisible realm as well as the visible realm so uh the idea that we always existed as spirit beings is just simply not the case. So, and again, you do have some Mormons who, will, who act like we eternally existed as spirit beings, and the spiritual realm was not created at all. And then other Mormons would say, "Well, no, there were. You know, God did create the spiritual realm as well." But I, I think, I think the uh, the more consistent view is that. The, The spirit realm is eternal, but as far as Mormons go, it's really a tough one to call. Um, The denial of the virgin birth, Mormons, here's another thing, if you tell this to a Mormon that they they deny the virgin birth, they'll, they'll get all upset with you. But they admit that God the Father was the one that got Mary pregnant, but they teach that God the Father had a body. They teach that God the Father came to earth to impregnate Mary. Now, he has a body. you know It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that God the Father had to have physical intercourse with Mary in order to bring that about. And so that is a straight out denial of the virgin birth. Now, of course, um, John chapter four, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, um, God the Father does not have a body. Luke 1:35 tells us, and, and Matthew 1:24-25, Mary was a virgin because you know uh, she was not; she did not have physical intercourse that caused her to get pregnant. And in the case of Jesus, she was a virgin; she had no relations with any any man. God the Father miraculously uh, uh, conceived God the Son through her. Uh, whatever the case uh, they, they do deny that the virgin birth there uh, the priesthood and temple services um, boy we could spend an entire lecture on this uh, a lot of information here um Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is really important. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Paul says this, Therefore let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. You see, Jesus is the substance. The shadows were just the uh, the Old Testament laws, the Sabbath days, the priesthood, the temple service. That pointed to Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, we don't need those things uh, anymore. Um, it's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus alone. The law was there to point forward to Jesus now that Jesus has come we no longer need uh, the ceremonial aspects uh, of the law uh, 1 Peter 2 4 and 5 and Revelation 1.6 those passages tell us that all believers we make up a spiritual priesthood so that there's no physical ritualistic priesthood that we're a part of we don't have to have Temple services or anything of that sort, okay? Um, we are a spiritual priesthood. Uh, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the sacrifices we're told to offer, Romans 12 1 and 2. Over. We no longer offer dead animal sacrifices, now we offer living human sacrifices. We offer our bodies. As a living sacrifice to the Lord, we say, Lord, just work through me. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5 15 said, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we offer our bodies to the Lord Jesus by allowing the Lord Jesus to work through us. Okay? And, uh, and that's the sacrifice of the Lord. We're no longer dead animal sacrifices. 1 Timothy two five tells us there is one God and only one mediator between God and men, the man and Christ Jesus. A mediator is a priest a go between. We only have one mediator. This is one of the reasons why I left the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the idea that there are m- many uh, mediators between. God and man simply not biblical if Jesus who is fully God and fully man is the only go between that we need um, that's why we don't have a ritualistic uh, professional priesthood that's why we call our, our pastors uh, shepherds and not uh, not priests um, and so there's a real uh, misunderstanding here In Mormonism, look at Ephesians two, verse eighteen, Ephesians two, verse eighteen. Paul's talking about both Jews and Gentiles who trust in Jesus. And he says, for through him, for through Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So he's saying, we have access to God the Father through Jesus alone. Now, if Roman Catholicism is true, you've got to go through the Roman Catholic priesthood to get to God. It's, it's the graces of Christ, Roman Catholicism says but it's the priest through the sacraments of the church that bring this, these saving graces to us uh, if Mormonism is true it's the Mormon priesthood that goes between man and God to get to God we've got to go through the Mormon ordinances Okay? But the scriptures teach us through Jesus and through him alone and uh, uh, the, the book of Hebrews The book of Hebrews is an excellent, it's a tough book to master. I preached through it, it took me several years. It's a tough book to master, but it refutes both Roman Catholicism and Mormonism on the idea of uh, sacrifices in a priesthood and and, uh, re-offering the sacrifice of Christ in Roman Catholicism. But look at Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So the law could not perfect us. Ceremonialism, it was just symbolic of Christ and his work that perfects us. The law could not do that. Uh, verses 10 to 14 of Hebrews 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Roman you know, the Catholicism, they re-offer the sacrifice of Christ over and over again. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, no, Christ offered his body once for all. In Mormonism, they've got all their rituals that, that they act like you know need to be done, when in actuality, everything that needs to be done was done by Christ. He said it is finished on the cross. Uh, There there doesn't need to be any other work. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. But by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You see, he's saying you have many Old Testament priests, but Jesus is just one man. Okay, he's also a holy God. We have many priests in the Levitical priesthood, Jesus is one man. These many priests are still standing. Because they're still working. If they had made man perfect, they'd be sitting. Their work would be done. But they were still standing, which means, by the way, the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. They were still standing and still offering sacrifice. The temple was still standing. Um, but Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand. His work was already done. Because by one offering, he accomplished all that needed to be accomplished to give our sins. So the many priests offering are standing. They're offering many offerings, many sacrifices. Jesus offered one offering for the sins of mankind for all time. Okay, so uh, that contrast is so it's showing us we no longer need a ritualistic, symbolic priesthood. Jesus is the real thing the real thing has come so let's focus on the real thing on the Lord Jesus and not all these religious rituals the Old Testament priesthood served his purpose now having said that we also need to keep in mind that the temple services in Mormonism have nothing to do with the Old Testament temple services they think that they brought back the ironic or Levitical priesthood, and they're bringing in the Melchizedekian priesthood. The fact of the matter is, it's got, it looks nothing like it. In fact, it's, uh, it appears that Joseph Smith stole a lot of this temple stuff from the Masons, from Freemasonry. Um, Matthew seven, uh, in verse seventeen. I mean, no, no, Hebrews seven, verse seventeen. I'm sorry. Uh, Hebrews 7, verse 17. For he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And in verses 23 and 20, talking about Jesus. And there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So the priest would die, so that he'd have to have then appoint his son. His son would be appointed the next high priest. There were many priests there after him. Uh, but he talking about Jesus because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is a, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he lives to make inter- he ever lives to make intercession for them. In other words, you don't need somebody to do the high priestly work anymore to continue what Jesus has done. Jesus has finished it; it's complete. So you know, Jesus didn't need an offspring. Say, hey, pick up where I left off. He didn't leave off anywhere. He finished it. That's why he said it is finished on the cross. Then Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, talks about, he says, Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Don't make oaths. Get out of the habit of making oaths. Well, not only do you have oaths being made in the Mormon temple, but there's secret oaths. there are cultic oaths, and they have very much in common, former high-ranking Mormons, and I've gotten together with former high-ranking Masons and compared notes, and it was documented on the John Ankerberg show, and shown that uh, Joseph Smith, uh, who had dabbled with Masonry, stole a lot of the uh, Temple uh, practices from, uh, from the Freemasonry. Um, Okay, so that's the priesthood and temple services. Uh, the occultic temple rituals like baptism for the dead focus on genealogies and trying to be baptized for uh, into Mormonism for you know, dead relatives who died of that. Um, the reason they do this is because it gets... You know, these, these are want-to-be gods some guy he gets married with his Mormon wife in the temple so he's going to be a god and she's going to be the wife of the god they wouldn't they don't really call her a goddess though but she's going to be the wife of the god and they're going to have spirit babies and have their own planet and then their spirit babies are going to get bodies physical bodies on the planet and they're going to decide how to redeem the people on that planet and so it's really neat for them they're going to play god and that type of thing um But apparently, by being baptized in the place of dead relatives, that adds to the size of your kingdom, and it adds to the amount of power that you're going to have. So um, there's all kinds of selfish reasons for wanting to go into their genealogies and find uh, forgotten relatives that they can then turn around and uh, be baptized for but because of this uh, some Mormons have actually gone to the extreme of trying to contact the spirits of deceased relatives whether through seances or whatever and it is the Mormonism starts out looking like Christianity and the, the, the further you get into it the higher up you go in the temple it starts looking more and more like the world of the occult Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 this is where they get their justification for baptizing for the dead 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29 Paul's arguing that Jesus has physically risen from the dead and therefore he will someday physically raise his church from the dead which the Corinthians had a hard time with because they were in, in Greece and Greek philosophers like Plato had, uh, had uh, rejected, they found the idea of a physical resurrection repugnant. The, the flesh is, is evil or not worth redeeming, only the spirit is worth redeeming. Oh, okay, so First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 29, Paul's arguing for this and he says, otherwise. What will they do who are baptized for the dead?